This summer marks the 15-year anniversary of the release of The Dark Knight, the second Batman movie in Christopher Nolan's trilogy. This particular movie brought in over a billion dollars and at its peak was the fourth most profitable movie of all time. Now, if you haven't seen the movie, it takes place in Gotham City where crime is running rampant. And Harvey Dent is the district attorney, and he's working in conjunction with the Batman. And yet, despite this partnership, crime seems to be running rampant. Things are spiraling out of control. Law and order is deteriorating. And there's this famous press conference scene where Harvey has confidence in the Batman, and yet the press doesn't see any progress. And they're sort of grilling him on, hey, what are we going to do here? How are we going to get the crime rates down? And And Harvey looks back at them with this sort of calm resilience, and he says, the night is darkest just before the dawn. And the press looks at him incredulously like, what what do you mean? How can you not be proposing, you know, heavier jail sentences? Or how can you not be proposing more funding for more police officers? Or how can you not do something? And in the back of his mind, you you can see Harvey with great confidence in the Batman, In a sense, you could say in the the language of this sermon series, Harvey had hope in the chaos of Gotham City. He didn't have hope because the circumstances had gotten better yet. He didn't have hope because he knew how Batman would act. He didn't have hope because he knew when Batman would act. He had hope because he trusted the character of Batman to act. In a way, that, that... movie and that analogy helps us to understand the story of Joseph in a small way. You know, as we begin this final leg of Genesis with the life of Joseph, I want to to challenge you to read this section of Scripture with a thoroughly God-centered perspective. I want to challenge you to read this story as if God is the main character, because he is. And the life of Joseph can be a fan favorite. I know he's one of my favorite characters in the whole Bible. And many of you have told me, I'm so excited to get to Joseph. I love going through the life of Joseph. But I think it's easy for us at times to read his story with a bit of a human-centered perspective instead of a God-centered perspective. It's easy to take this story and, and make it about, here's how we can take our lives from the pit to the palace of sorts. Here's kind of tactics for how we fight temptation or endure hardship or live in a culture that's hostile to Christianity. And we are absolutely going to make application to those points along the way. It's not that we're not going to do that, but they aren't the main point. See, the main point is to show you the God who is faithful to keep his promises. The main point is to show you the God who provides what you need in hardship, the God who provides what you need to fight temptation, to show you the God who provides what you need to live in a culture that's hostile to Christianity. You've got to start there and get that right. So that even when you don't see better circumstances, you can still have hope. So that even when you don't know what God is doing or when he's going to do something, you can still have hope. See, Harvey Dent had hope in the chaos of Gotham City because he trusted the character of Batman. And similarly, you will only find hope in the chaos of your life when you have a deep confidence in the character of God. Let me say that again. You will only find hope in the chaos of your life when you have a deep confidence in the character of God. 
And what Genesis 37 does is it introduces us to this story of Joseph. And it's sort of a rude introduction into the chaos of his life. And so here's the main thing I want you to see this morning from Genesis chapter 37. It's this, God mysteriously works in hard hearts and dark places. That's the main thing that we're going to see here in Genesis 37, that God mysteriously works in hard hearts and dark places. That word mysteriously is important to see. In Genesis 1 through 36, everything coming up to this point, the name of God has appeared about 10 times per chapter. If you average it out, it's roughly 10 times per chapter. But in the final 14 chapters, the life of Joseph, do you know how often the name of God shows up? Only about three times per chapter. It's God mysteriously working. We don't always see it there. What does it tell us? It tells us that it's normal for us to not always see the hand of God directly working, but to recognize that even when I don't directly see it, he's still working. And it's as if God gives this, this little nugget here to recognize, yes, I was actively working in all of Joseph's life, even though he didn't see it, and even though my name doesn't show up as frequently in these chapters, I'm still at work. It reminds me of the the old hymn, God works in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. I love the second verse of that hymn. Maybe, Maybe you know it and can sing it, or maybe you've never heard the song, but listen to this. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. You're afraid? Take courage. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Those clouds of life that seem so dreadful and so scary, God is bringing clouds of mercy over and you don't yet see it and it's mysterious how it's going to work, but he's always working. And so what we see in Genesis 37 is what Christians for the centuries and millennia have seen, that God mysteriously works in hard hearts and in dark places. And by looking back and seeing how he's done that, it gives us confidence and hope to carry on when our life feels incredibly chaotic. So our plan this morning is to take our first two points and look at the hard hearts in Genesis 37 and then the dark places of Genesis 37. And then in the third point, we're going to zoom out and start to see more of God's mysterious work in all of it. All right, that's our approach. Let's dive into the first point. I'm going to simply say it this way. See the hard hearts. What we'll mean by that is see the hard hearts in chapter 37 as well as in your own life. Almost immediately in this chapter, we're introduced to family conflict and hard hearts within their family. Certainly, Jacob's favoritism comes through towards Joseph. But the dominant theme in chapter 37 is the hard hearts of Joseph's brothers. That's the dominant theme. And Joseph doesn't have any sin reported in his life. It doesn't mean that he's a sinless individual. It's more of a literary device to not communicate his sin and highlight the sin of his brothers to say even in their wickedness, God is still at work. Look back at verse 3 with me, if you would. Here's what we see. Now Israel, that being Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was the son of his old age. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
for seeing the hard hearts and recognizing that Joseph's brothers hated him before any of the dreams. But the dreams intensify the hatred, and it grows, and it spirals out of control. The picture we get is of Joseph as being one of royalty. There's two dreams that happen. Both of them show the brothers and the family bowing down as they would to royalty. It's common in Uh, to have two dreams together that have a same message. That would happen if you're familiar with the story ahead in chapter 41, where there would be two dreams, same message, same thing happens here. Joseph is going to be royalty. You will bow down to him. And this coat that Jacob had given to Joseph also pictures Joseph as royalty. The ESV translates it as a coat of many colors, and it might have been, but the bigger emphasis is that you see it was a coat that signified This man is going to be royalty. So the the NIV translates it as an ornate robe. Or the the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, says a long-sleeved robe. The New Living Translation says a beautiful robe. But whatever the case, the the brothers couldn't stand the idea of their brother being royalty. And the the passage gives us a clear picture of the brothers growing in hatred, like a bonfire with a bone-dry pine tree on it. The hatred just rages like a fire out of control. We see in verse 4, they hated him, could not speak peacefully to him. Verse 5, they hated him even more. Verse 8, so they hated him even more for his words and for his dreams. Verse 11, so his brothers were jealous of him. Just over and over. And you kind of wonder, like, how could they hate him more than they already did? They couldn't even say one single nice word to him. And yet it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And yet somehow in it, they seem to conceal it to a degree, because Joseph and Jacob have this idea, let's send Joseph to go check on these brothers by himself. Like in hindsight, you kind of think, man, how did we ever think that was a good idea? But somehow they didn't quite realize how intense this hatred was. And so we pick up with the next leg of their hatred in verse 18. Would you look down and read along with me here? They saw him from afar. This is the brothers seeing Joseph. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. We see this this personal vendetta they have against Joseph. The phrase, let us kill, could also be translated, let us do this ruthless violence. See how sick we can become. And so when Joseph shows up, what's the first thing they do? They strip him of his robe. And they say to him, let's see what becomes of these dreams. You don't seem so royal now, do you, Joseph? Jealousy has rotted their souls like termites in wood. And it's completely eaten them out. They throw him in this pit. It's likely 15 to 20 feet deep. These were common in that era. They were used for storage, for short-term imprisonment, sometimes even for disposing of dead bodies. That's where they throw him with the intent to leave him. And then they go to eat dinner. 
And it's such a sick picture of their hardened hearts. As their brother is in the pit crying out for water or food or something, they're having a pig roast with the smell just engulfing the whole area, laughing it up, enjoying themselves, silencing. You know, they've got, they've got their noise-counseling headphones on of sorts and choosing not to hear his screams. But then they realize, hey, th- th- I mean, we've kind of got some aggression taken out here. We've kind of struck back at him, but we can actually make money on the gig. Like, there's more profit for us in this, so let's sell him. And we can get richer off of it. Because don't you see how jealousy makes you crazy? And failing to deal with it will just turn you into a monster? The night seems so dark in their hearts. It's hard to picture it being any darker. And in Joseph's life, it's hard to imagine the night being any darker than it was. And yet somehow we're told in Genesis 45 and also in Psalm 105 that God had sent Joseph ahead of them. He was actively working in that. And we'll come back to the strange providence of God in this story in a few minutes, but we don't want to move past this without at least acknowledging it. But right now, I want us to consider the hardness of their heart. Joseph's brothers, like I said, were consumed by this jealousy. It started with their father's favoritism towards Joseph. So at the beginning, they were actually wronged. Isn't that often where our sin problems start? Somebody wrongs us, and then that's our on-ramp to justify our own sin and not respond in godliness to actual bad things that are happening. It's so important we recognize this path of temptation isn't new. The same path that consumed them can consume me, and it can consume you. So you can read a passage like this, and you can marvel at the hardness of their heart. How in the world could you be so wicked? How in the world could you let the termites eat out your soul so thoroughly? But the better way, the wiser way to read it is to recognize that could just as easily be me, and to marvel at the hardness of my heart. That's why the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17 would say, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know it? Because that, des- that describes your heart, describes my heart, darker than I can know, darker than you can know. And so the moment that you begin to think that somebody else out there is more wicked than you, more hateful than you, more whatever than you. Know that you are right where Satan wants you. We all have those people. It's easy for us to think, oh, those people are the really bad people. And yeah, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not really quite that bad. I'm not that sinful. It reminds me of an old quote from the famous Baptist preacher from London, Charles Spurgeon. This is kind of a paraphrase, but he basically said this. If if somebody thinks bad thoughts about you, don't worry about it. You're a lot worse than they think you are. (laughs) You know, somebody starts to say bad stuff about us. I was self-justified. Oh, no, I'm not like that. Oh, I didn't mean it that way. Oh, I'm not this or that. And he says, oh, no, no, don't worry. Calm down. You're, You're a lot worse. That's why uh, Peter would write in his epistle, chapter 5, verse 8, be watchful, be sober-minded, because you know that your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
He's looking for somebody who gets a little bit inflated view of themselves. Starts to think I'm not as bad as them. I don't need the local church. He's prowling around looking for someone to devour. And so the beginning part of that verse is so critical for us. Be watchful. Be sober-minded, clear thinking. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, is what Ephesians would say. See what's going on around you. As the fact of the matter is, every single one of us needs grace. And it's grace that brings you to salvation. And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, know that grace is available to you because of Jesus Christ who came to the earth, lived a perfect life, and then died a death on the cross to pay for your sins and offer forgiveness that you could be made right with God. That's the most important decision you could ever make is to trust in his grace for your salvation. But Christians, you have to understand as well that grace isn't merely something that saves you and then you move on from it. The gospel isn't something you believe in and then move past it. No, you need daily transforming grace daily sustaining grace, daily confessing grace. Because the path that Joseph's brothers were on is a path that all of us can be on. It's another way of saying there's no grace graduates. You never move on from grace. And so a simple way to do a self-assessment here is to ask yourself this. What does my confession of sin to God look like? I'm going to challenge you to think about the frequency of confession and the specificity of confession. I confess, you know, once a week, once a month, maybe in the morning when I pray. The more frequent you are bringing your sins to God, the more alive to grace you're going to be. And the second thing on the specificity is to be very specific in naming your sins to God. Because when I know that grace covers it, I can be honest about where I'm at. But when I think I have to earn my standing just a little bit, I'll start to be vague. Well, I'm having a little bit of a struggle today. Maybe that's not quite so accurate for where you're actually at. Name the sin specifically. And the more frequently I confess and the more specific I am in naming it, are some of the best indicators to seeing the hardness of my heart and living in light of God's transforming grace, not just head-nodding about grace when the preacher talks about it. Joseph's brothers, however, didn't do this. They didn't deal with their sin, and it did consume them. So friends, learn from them. Don't repeat their mistakes. God's specialty is in working in really hard hearts even yours, even mine. But you have to confess your hardness of heart to him. He exalts the humble, but hates the proud. And the proud conceal their sin. So we see not only the hard hearts here in Genesis 37, but we want to see some dark places in Genesis 37 as well. This brings us to our our second point. See the dark places. See the dark places. I'm going to read from chapter, or chapter 12, verse 12 in just a moment. But when I read, I want you to pay attention to the geography as I'm reading. And specifically, I want you to focus on two places, Shechem and Dothan. Right, so just keep an eye out for those as I'm reading, and then we'll talk about the significance, starting in verse 12 and then down through verse 17. 
Now, his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. A man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. The man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. So, so these brothers are sent by their dad. They're supposed to be in Shechem, but they end up in Dothan. So the, the original journey for Joseph from this valley of Hebron to Shechem is about 50 miles. It's like going from here by foot to the outlet to Edinburgh. That's why Jacob wouldn't go in his old age. It's a long way to go. And he gets there and finds that they're actually in Dothan, which is an additional 15 miles from there. This town of Dothan would come to be known as one of, if not the darkest places in all of Joseph's life. It's in Dothan that he would be crying out for mercy from the pit while his brothers are just living it up and just ignoring him altogether, carrying on with their own wicked ways. I think it's important that we slow down and not miss what's right in front of our eyes in Genesis 37. These guys were supposed to be in Shechem. It's where their father sent them to be. And we don't have any idea why they left Shechem. Passage doesn't give us any indication. They just weren't there. Somehow God was sovereign over that. And of course, Joseph gets lost. He's wandering around in Shechem saying, anybody seen my brothers? Like, I thought they were here and they're not. And it's a 50-mile journey. And he goes, oh yeah, they're, they're over in Dothan. And Joseph somewhat randomly meets this guy. Or maybe it wasn't so random that he met this guy. God was sovereignly overseeing even this conversation. And Dothan is significant that they would end up there because Dothan's on this trade route to Egypt. And several times in the passage, we hear of Joseph being led down to Egypt. Chapter verse 25, verse 28, verse 36, all talk about he's going to Egypt. And the original audience is all going to know, when you hear going to Egypt, that means bad news. Good things aren't going to happen in Egypt. Egypt is this wicked, evil empire. Yes, the exodus came out of Egypt, they would know that. But going to Egypt is not a good thing. Leave, leaving Egypt is a good thing. But we also recognize that if Joseph never made it to Dothan, where his brothers weren't supposed to be, and he randomly met a dude who could point him there, Joseph probably never makes it to Egypt either. So can you imagine Joseph's thoughts as he's sold as a slave, sent to Egypt, falsely accused, thrown in prison? He's thinking back over this town called Dothan. Why did my father send me to Shechem? Why did I agree to go? Why couldn't my brothers have stayed in Shechem? Why'd they have to go to Dothan where everything went off the rails? Why did that random guy have to know where they were? Why did I have to find that random guy? Like, why couldn't I just wander around and go home? Imagine all these thoughts running through his head over these 20 years alone in Egypt. One of the darkest places in his life. But looking back, but looking back, even in the dark places, he could see God actively working. 
And some 20 plus years later, when his brothers come to Egypt in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph would say to them, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. In the long view, Joseph can say, even in the darkest places, I saw God mysteriously working. He'd only see a tiny fraction of it. And sometimes we only see a tiny fraction of what God is doing. But we can know that he's still mysteriously working. There's actually more to this place called Dothan, though. It would come to be known as a very dark place in Israel's history where God would mysteriously work. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we read of Elisha being in Dothan. And this wicked king comes and encircles him while he's at Dothan. And he's planning to kill him. And so Elisha wakes up, and one of Elisha's servants wakes up as well. And the servant looks out and says, like, uh, Elisha, what are we going to do here, man? There's an entire army encircling us, and there's like 10 of us here. This is not good. And Elisha says to him, he says, it'll be okay. There's more with us than with them. And his servant kind of looks at him like, Elisha, what are you talking about, man? There's, there's like just a couple of us. There's an entire army. And Elisha says, pray that their eyes will be open so that they can see. And the Lord opens the eyes of this wicked general and his whole army, and he sees 10 trillion soldiers that are the armies of heaven, the angels there, and the, the ruler looks at him, the, the general looks at him and says, oh, actually, you know what, guys, have a good day. We're going we're gonna to keep going now. In Dothan, what seemed like the end of their life, the end of their journey, one of the darkest places, and so in Israelite history, Dothan begins to be this place where there's dark things happening, and yet God is mysteriously at work. And sometimes, like Elisha, you see God mysteriously working in real time. You ever had a story like that in your own life? Like, yeah, I didn't see what was going on, and God opened the doors, and I saw him at work. And other times, it's like Joseph's life, where you don't see it right away. And it's not till 25 years later where you can look back because I tried to be faithful, I tried to obey, I tried to honor God, and now I can see what he's doing. And it takes a while for his mysterious work to be made plain. But the point for all of us is to see that God is mysteriously working even in the dark places in our lives. And Joseph's life is a powerful reminder of that. We've seen the dark the hard hearts, and recognize the dark places. But there's a third thing that we need to see in Genesis 37. It's this, that we should participate in God's mysterious plan. Participate in his mysterious plan. You see, up to this point, we've been very focused on seeing the, the negativity, the, the difficulty, the adversity, the chaos, whatever word you want to use there. And we've started to hint at what God is doing, I want to see that expounded and a little bit more clear. You might say it this way, because God works mysteriously through hard hearts and through dark places, I can know that he's working in my dark places and in my hard heart and in the hard hearts of those around me. But maybe you're asking, what exactly is it, Justin, that God is working towards? It was intentionally ambiguous in the main idea of the passage, the sermon, God mysteriously works through hard hearts and dark places. Working towards what? Working in what way? I didn't answer that, right? Maybe you said that, like, well, be more specific. Tell us what you mean. 
Is he working to fix all of your problems in the next three months? Sometimes we read Joseph in that way, but that concept would be totally foreign to Joseph, wouldn't it? Sometimes we read it like, God is working to give me the job I want, or help me find the spouse I want, or get into the school that I want to get into. That reading would be entirely foreign to Joseph. It's not how it works. See, the overarching theme of all Scripture is that all nations and all people groups will come to both see and to love God's glory. God's saying, I will be glorified among all the nations. And Joseph plays a critical role in that. You see, what happens is we often want a God who's bigger than our circumstances, who can change our circumstances in the way we want them changed. And it's true that God is bigger than your circumstances, but he's actually bigger than you conceive of him because he's in the process of reshaping your desired outcomes. He's inviting you to see his plan and to participate in his plan for all the nations to see and to love his glory above all else. When you zoom out, you see this in Joseph. Because this is one of our prayers, that we would be a people who longs for the nations to see and to love God's glory. All of them. It's important that you see this from all of Scripture. Otherwise, we drift into, well, that's just what the preacher's talking about. You need to see it for yourself. So I'm going to go through a bunch of verses here and just kind of move quickly and catch the, the flow of all of Scripture and then kind of zoom in on our lives and what that means. It starts early on. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. God promises to Abraham, in you, all the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. It's not super specific. There's a blessing coming to all. What shape will that take? By God sending his people out to declare how glorious he is. That's the blessing, that the nations will see the glory of God. Just a couple chapters later, in Genesis 15, God promises to send his people to Egypt for 400 years, where they'll be treated terribly, and they'll be judged and sent out. And in that judgment, word of God's glory goes out, because we read in Joshua 2 of Rahab, who heard about the judgment that was being delivered on God's people. You remember that story? We heard about you, she said, and we believed. We've heard how glorious your God is. He's better than the Egyptians. He's more powerful. You must be worshiping the one true God. This theme picks up and it, it ramps up through all of Scripture. So we, we read in Psalm 86, actually the passage for our call to worship this morning. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. They will see your glory and they will love your glory. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Jump into the prophets, Isaiah chapter 66. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and shall see my glory. See this building? God says, I will get my glory among all the nations. And when we move forward to the New Testament, in Romans 1, and Paul says, here's what's going on, guys. We have received grace. We've received apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. You get the end of Jesus' life, Matthew 28, and what's his commissioning? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. They're going to see my glory and love it. 
And you get to the end, to Revelation chapter 5, where you're gathered around the throne. People are saying, by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and every people and nation. All the way back in Genesis 37, we see the beginning of this. God beginning to send his people out through hardship so that the nations would see and love his glory. See, Joseph's life isn't merely a tale about making it through difficulty or temptation or a hostile culture. That's part of it, but it's much bigger. It's the story about God mysteriously working through hard hearts and through dark places so that all nations will see and love his glory. Joseph didn't particularly love the way God chose to send him into the world, but he embraced it and chose to participate in it and live faithfully in it. Let me give you a a modern-day example of this. It was in the 1930s and 40s that the nation of Japan started to invade North Korea. Christians in North Korea realized they were in trouble and they had to flee. But when you live on an island, it's kind of hard to flee. So they, they fled, actually, to Russia, to a port city called Vladivostok. I think we have a map of it up here. So you see North Korea there on the the bottom and the left. They had to actually go by sea. It's about the distance from Cuba to Miami that they had to go right there. You imagine being a Christian in 1941 in North Korea. The Japanese are invading. You've heard of their horrific methods of how they kill people. You're running and you're taking your, your little kids. You're taking your elderly parents. You're hopping in one of these rafts that they call a boat and trying to make it 100 miles. Some of you make it. A lot of you don't. They make it to Vladivostok. And only a short time after being there, they find out that Vladivostok is a major city for the development of weapons. Joseph Stalin hears about all these Koreans moving to Vladivostok. He says, we can't have a huge influx of a Korean population. This is, this is a threat. And so this place called Vladivostok that was supposed to be the harbinger of safety you could finally get to, they end up being targeted by Stalin. And he says, we can't have you here. So he rounds up all the Koreans, many of them being Christians, and he deports them to Uzbekistan, some 5,000 miles away. Give you a little perspective here. If you drive from here to Los Angeles, you're less than halfway to that distance. He picks them up and throws them all the way across the continent. Now imagine your family, ragged, torn, don't have really any clothes left, not sure where you're going to find a meal. Wondering if God is mysteriously working in the hard hearts of Joseph Stalin and the dark places of Vladivostok, Russia. God, where are you at? You wonder? Turns out Uzbekistan is a highly Muslim nation. They've been resistant to any kind of Western influence for hundreds of years, and especially any kind of Christian influence. And these North Korean Christians now planted in Uzbekistan, are able to stay there because the mighty Russians are backing them. And they've been ushered in by the Russian military. And these Christians, 
battered and torn, decide to keep pressing on for God. They start to evangelize the Muslims around them. We're now in the mid to late 40s. The underground church starts to grow in Uzbekistan. People are getting saved. They're not telling anybody, though. The story goes on and on. And in the late 80s, when the Iron Curtain falls, you've got an already groundswell revival happening in Uzbekistan. And within six months of the Iron Curtain falling, they're having open-air street meetings to proclaim the gospel. And the streets literally cannot contain everyone who's coming. And the area, the area that had been closed off to the gospel, those nations were not seeing and not loving God's glory, were reached because God says, I'm going to mysteriously work in hard hearts and dark places. I'm going to invite Christians to participate in my glorious mission. And sometimes like Elisha in 2 Kings 6 and Dothan, you see it right away how God is working. And sometimes, like Joseph, it takes like 25 years to see it. And sometimes in Uzbekistan, you die on your way to Uzbekistan and don't see how God is mysteriously working. In eternity, you find out, wow, this is amazing. Our God is at work here. Friends, this isn't just the story of North Korean Christians in Uzbekistan. It's not just the story of Joseph in Egypt. This is your story. This is your story. God has you where he has you for a reason. Acts 17, so that even the place you live and how long you live there is established by God so that people will seek God and find him because you're there to tell him, here's the God who's glorious. Every single aspect of your life is being used by God for his glory. This is why our discipleship pathway, membership maturity mission, mission breaks down into two things. Every member sent, every nation thought, sought. You recognize, I am sent every week, and we are seeking every nation. And it means that there's nothing that's random in your life. It means that your neighbors aren't an accident. It means the people you meet at your kid's school, they're not random. It means at your, when you go to visit your elderly parents at the nursing home, the people that are in the next door over, or the lady who's the receptionist, or the nurses there, they're not random. God is placing you in their lives so that all nations will see and love his glory. Guys, think about this, just practical terms. It means your, your clients are not an accident. It means your coworkers aren't an accident. The weather gets nice, you go out, it means the people sitting next to you at the pool, they're not an accident. When you go to the doggy bark park, the people next to you there, they're not an accident either. Guys, participate in the mysterious and grand plan of God. Go and proclaim his glory wherever you're at. You know, we, we started earlier today talking about this Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Here's the good news. God's not calling you to be the Batman. He's not asking you to do that. No, he's calling you to trust that he's working. And like Harvey Dent, he's calling you to faithfully do your part, to have your eyes open to see those around you and to proclaim the gospel as you go. You might be surrounded by hard hearts. You might be surrounded by dark places. 
And God's work might seem very mysterious to you because you can't see it anywhere. But friend, he is working. And when it feels hard to believe, maybe too hard to believe, like he's been silent for too long. You haven't seen him break through in somebody's life in a long time. Is he really here? We remember Joseph going to see his brothers. We remember the robe being ripped off of him. It reminds us of a better king, Jesus, who would also have a robe ripped off of him. And if God was actively and mysteriously working both in Joseph to bring about a salvation and actively working in the greater king, Jesus, to bring about a greater salvation, then you can have great confidence in the dark places in your life and in the hard hearts in your life that he's actively working as well. You can have deep confidence in the character of God, which is way better than the character of any Batman. And you can know with surety that you can have hope in the chaos because the night is always darkest just before the dawn. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are working in all ways and in all places in ways we don't know and don't see, but you are still mysteriously working. So we ask for your grace to trust you when it's hard. We don't see what's going on. We don't understand why. We ask for your grace to see the hardness of our own hearts and to see those around us that are not random, that you've placed there for a purpose. We thank you for the life of Joseph where we can look back and see you mysteriously working in a trillion ways that we wouldn't necessarily understand on our own. But it gives us confidence. It gives us hope. We pray that we would cling to that hope today and every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.